Today, this is Palm Sunday. Most often you'll hear people teach the triumphal entry today. And the text that we're going to be in is going to cover that. So we are going to work our way through the, the triumphal entry. You know, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king and people are waving palm branches and singing Hosanna, that, that whole narrative. So I'm, I'm excited to go there. But I want to take just a step back and consider a couple of things before we get into that. I want to consider, first off, what, what would you say, if you had to, to think on this, was, would be the most part, important part of Jesus' life? And I think that it's, uh, at least in the minds of the, the authors of the Gospels, they make it pretty clear based on how much time they give in each one of the Gospels to any particular portion of Jesus' life. So I just want to read this to you. If you combine the four Gospels, there would be 89 chapters total between the four Gospels. 89 chapters of Scripture. Out of 89 chapters, only four of those chapters are given to the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Only four chapters. We know very little about the first 30 years. Just a little bit here and there. 85 of those chapters out of 89 are given to the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. What we refer to as His earthly ministry as He launches off and He begins to do miracles and preach that the kingdom has come and before He... He goes to the cross. 29 of those chapters detail the last week of His life. 29 chapters. And then lastly, 13 chapters are given to the last day of His life. The last 24 hours. So the Scriptures, the Gospels, most definitely spend the most time at the last week and the last day of Jesus' life. That, that is the most important part. That is why He came. And, and so that's what we're looking at this week as we start today and work our way through this coming week is the last week of Christ's life. And so this is a very exciting time, a very exciting series of messages. And today, what I want to really capitalize on is the authority of Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. And as He comes into Jerusalem for the last time, for this last Passover meal and then ultimately to be crucified and, and buried and to, to rise again from the dead. He is coming in and He is putting His authority on display as the King. So where we pick up today in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 and following, I'm going to show you all of these different examples of how Christ demonstrates His authority, His power as the King. He is presenting Himself to the people as the King of Israel, the foretold one, the Lord. And He will ultimately be rejected by the people that He came to save. And, and we'll, we'll get into that. But nonetheless, the King is entering in and He is putting His authority on full display, uh, display. So, let's pray. God, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. Truly, it is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. We are so grateful for it. For by Your Word, we know You, Lord. We we, we understand more of You by Your Spirit, Lord. You reveal Yourself to us in so many ways, God, but specifically and very specially by Your Word. And today, as we consider Your words, we're going to see the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ put on display for all. And I pray, Father, as we do consider these things, that You would be glorified. Oh, Lord Jesus, would You be exalted through the preaching of Your Word today? Would You be magnified? Would You be honored. May I preach Christ and preach 
with love and with power and with clarity and with conviction. Be honored, O Lord. And I pray that You would minister to the hearts and the minds in this room as we consider all of these different areas in which You display authority and understand exactly how that fits into our lives, Lord, because so much of this applies to us as followers, as, as lovers of the Lord, as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so I pray that You would speak to us by Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, Luke chapter 18, verse 31, we're going to look at Jesus' authority over death. Verse 31, then He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For He will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge Him and kill Him, and the third day He will rise again. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So, Jesus is setting off here. Now they are about to enter into Jerusalem. Now, several months ago, Jesus had already begun to make His way in this direction. And we're told in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem. So several months earlier, Jesus began this pilgrimage, and He knew that this would be it. This was the very thing that He came for. And so all of these years of His life have been pointing towards this one thing, and now He has set. His face is set towards Jerusalem. His face is set towards the cross, and the pilgrimage has already begun. And we know in Mark, Jesus three times says this very thing. He tells the disciples, look, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be mocked, spit on, scourged, killed. And the third day I will rise again. And so Jesus has been telling them this over and over. But now they are right outside of Jerusalem. They've made the pilgrimage. They are drawing near. And Jesus reminds them for the third time. He tells them, look, this is where we're going. This is what is going to happen. And he said, everything that the prophet said will be accomplished. And just to name a couple, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 are classic passages where the prophets wrote in great detail of the, the suffering, the anguish that our Lord would suffer. And He said these things had to happen just as the prophets said they would. They're getting ready to happen. And Jesus gives great detail about what was going to happen. And He talks about how He's going to rise from the grave on the third day. And Jesus has authority over his own life. He has authority over death. He said, no one takes my life from me. I give it away. If you'll notice in your notes here, John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says just that, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is no victim. Jesus came to be crushed for our sins. Jesus' life was not taken from Him. He determined at a certain point in time He would give His life away. He says, I have the authority to do that. And I have the authority to take it back up. And why is that such good news for us? Because if Christ lives, so shall we. And that's exactly what He says in John chapter 14. He tells them to, to be of, of good cheer. To, to rejoice and to, to know that 
He will live, and because He lives, we shall too. And we rejoice over the fact that Jesus has that kind of authority. And you're going to hear me use this word several times, as I already have. The, the Greek word is exousia. And that's, a, that's a, um, an important word. It, one, it speaks of power. So when I talk about the authority of Christ, I'm talking about the power that He, that he wields. But at the same time, it speaks of a delegated uh, power that is given to him. And we'll see the, the Pharisees, they charge him with that. They say, where do you get this authority from? Who gives you the authority to do these things? They want to know, you know, who's giving you, who's delegating to you this power. And Jesus says it over and over. He has come to do that which pleases the Father. He is doing the will of his Father in heaven and that he has been given authority by him. He says, all authority... And heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's been given to him by the Father. And Jesus has authority over death. And because he lives, we too shall live. And that's one of the greatest assurances that we have as believers. Is to know that the last enemy that will be crushed is death itself. And that we will, uh, after we pass away physically, we will be resurrected and we will live in a glorified state with our Lord forever and we will be with Him and we will worship Him in glory. We will see Him as He is and we will know perfect praise, no longer distracted, no longer tainted by sin, no longer confused by the, by the weakness and frailty of the human mind, but because He lives, we too shall live and we will worship Him forever in glory because He has authority over death. Next, we're going to see that he has authority over blindness. Verse 35. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Alright, so now they're, they're making their way towards Jericho. So they're getting, more and, they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And they're moving with a very large crowd. This would be normal for a pilgrimage coming uh, to the Passover. All the more so for Jesus because He always seemed to have a huge crowd that was attracted to Him. And so there's this blind beggar here. He figures out something's going on and he starts asking and they tell him it's Jesus of Nazareth and he loses it. He begins to cry out frantically for the Lord. And the crowd, they're annoyed by this and they try to stop him, but they cannot. He will not be silenced. He is going after the Lord with everything that he has. And the Lord engages him. The Lord receives him and the Lord rewards his faith by giving him sight. Now just a side note. When I see this kind of thing, thing, I'm impressed by just how serious this guy was about finding Jesus. I mean, he went after him with everything he had. He couldn't even see, but he was going to find Jesus. 
And he cried out and he cried out and people tried to stop him. People sternly warned him to stop and he would not. Now just think about that. How much energy, how much effort do we give towards pursuing Jesus? I think about my, my life before Christ, the kinds of things that, that uh, my life was about, the things that, you know, um, just kind of things that I was given to. I think about the kind of effort I put into to that that lifestyle, that, the criminal lifestyle that I, that I lived. And sometimes I'm challenged, I challenge myself and think, do I even put half of the initiative into pursuing and living for the Lord that I did living that lifestyle? You know, and I'm convicted by that. But then I think about life now. Think about all of us here and now in this place. What are the things that, that, that take our hearts? What are the thing, things that take our loyalty are we pursuing Jesus? Are we going after Him like this guy? We will not be denied. Try to stop me as you may. I will not be distracted. I will not be hindered. I must have Christ. I love that. And Jesus rewarded that. Jesus rewarded His faith. Now Jesus exercises authority over this man's blindness. And we see that kind of thing happen all throughout the Gospels. The Gospels really are a testimony to Christ's authority over all kinds of things. The demonic realm, over sickness and disease, over death, even over the, the wind and the waves of the sea. And then He turned water into wine and He multitude, uh, multiplied the bread and the fish and fed thousands of people. Jesus had authority over all kinds of elements, but He had authority over sickness and blindness. And He gave this man His sight. But Jesus also exercises authority over spiritual blindness. And that is far more damning. That is far more dangerous and it is far more prevalent in the world that we live. Uh, as, as awful as physical blindness is, spiritual blindness is so, more, so much more rampant and it is eternally damning. And so Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind as well. In your notes, you'll notice 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of the blindness of, of people who um, are hardened against Christ. It says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. The God of this world, he's speaking of Satan there. He says, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God has caused the light of His glorious Son to shine in the hearts and the eyes and the minds of so many who were blinded, who were dead in their trespass and sin. And such were all of us in this room at some point in time. And we know well that we were separated from God, that we were dead, that we could not keep the law, we could not do what was right, we could not get ourselves together and pull it together and, and do right before God. We were blind. And God gave us light. God gave us sight through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And undoubtedly, there are some in this room now who don't know that. They, they don't have that knowledge of the truth. They're, you're blind even to this very hour. Dead 
as it were, separated from God and trespass and sin. But Jesus has come to give you sight. Jesus has come to shine in the hearts and minds of those who would know God and be born again and to be saved, to be saved. Amen? Next, we're going to see Jesus' authority over sin. This is the story of Zacchaeus. Classic story. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Alright, so now Jesus is passing through Jericho. This is about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem at this point. And we're introduced to this tax collector, Zacchaeus. And he was a, a chief tax collector, we're, we're told, and he's very rich. We're also told that he's very short. And so I don't have the time to get into it, and you've probably heard me talk about this quite a bit in the past, but we all know the tax collectors were despised people. And they, they worked for Rome, and they would exact the taxes on the people, so they were already considered traitors, and they were crooks because they would take more and pocket that. Well, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and tax collectors, they could actually, almost like a franchise, purchase certain areas of land and all the people who lived there had to pay to them, and then they would pay to Rome. And so Zacchaeus, he had a lot of, a lot of territory that would have belonged to him, and so he was especially a terrible person in the sight of the people. And we're told that he was a very rich man. But he knows that Jesus is coming, and he's very fascinated by this, and he wants to find Jesus too. And so we're told that he runs ahead of the crowd. It's a very dangerous thing for him to be in this crowd. You know, there were zealots. You've heard me talk about that. One of the twelve disciples were a zealot. They were basically terrorists that, that hated the Roman occupation and they would resort to guerrilla warfare type tactics to, to fight against Rome. And they were known as dagger men. They had the, a very special ability to walk through a crowd and just stab somebody and disappear. And, you know, Zacchaeus was really taking his life in his own hands, but he was going to find Christ. So he, he runs ahead of the crowd, gets up into a tree... And then verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, He looked up and saw Him and said to Him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So He made haste and came down and received Him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He is gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. So I love how Jesus just walks up and there's Zacchaeus up in a tree. And He's like, hey, Zacchaeus, Come down. And I just picture that in my mind, what that must have looked like. And it's so funny to me, Jesus knows His name. He just walks up and sees Him there and says, Hey, you, call Him by name. And then He invites Himself over to Zacchaeus' house. I love that. Jesus just invites Himself over. And I think of Revelation chapter 3, I think it's verse 20, where He says, you know, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open to Me, I will come in and dine with them, and they with Me. That's our Lord. He's always leaning in. He's, he's inviting Himself. He wants to dine with us. He wants to meet with us. And not just the good people. He especially came to meet with the people who need Him the most. 
the people that are at their lowest point, the people that are hurting the most, the people who have done the worst things. Jesus wants to dine with them all. And so Jesus invites Himself over to uh, Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus um, takes him in gladly. Verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus displayed true repentance here. He was thrilled to have the Lord come into his house. And then he stands up and says, Lord, look, I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to pay people back. I'm going to restore fourfold. Now the law did say that if someone was scammed, that they were to be paid back. But he goes way above and beyond what was required of him. And so we, we see the level of repentance here just in his exuberance, his excitement to make it right no matter what, even to go above and beyond what is required of him. He's not going to do the bare minimum here. You know, some people, they, wanna, they want the Lord, but they, they, they really just want to be saved from their life, but they don't really want the Lord. They, they want to get right with God, but can I get right with God and how close can I be to these other things still and still live a certain way and, and, and live a certain kind of lifestyle that's really incompatible with the Lord altogether. But Zacchaeus didn't do that. He went above and beyond. He said, look, Lord, all of this that I've done, he confessed it. He said, and I'm going to make it right and I'm going to go above and beyond that. And Jesus called him a son of Abraham. Now we know Abraham was, was the father of faith. And he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness because he believed the promises of God. And he was justified because of that. But James also makes the point, it was the, it was the faith and the works. The works was a demonstration of his faith. The fact that he said he believed God manifested itself in obedience. And so we see that here with Zacchaeus. And furthermore, what's really fascinating is it wasn't long ago that Jesus was just with the, uh, the rich young ruler in the previous chapter. And Jesus says, sell everything you have and follow me. And the guy went away sad because he had many possessions. And then Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, than for a rich man. And then the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with man... It's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so in the next chapter, we see someone who was very rich, exceedingly rich, who gladly gave away the things of the world to have something greater, to have God. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. See, with God, all things are possible. Amen? So Jesus is exercising His Lordship. He is demonstrating His authority even over the depravity of man over the sinful state of man, salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. And in Matthew chapter 9, you may have heard the story before. Someone was brought before Jesus and they wanted Him to heal Him. And He said, Be of good cheer today, your sins are forgiven you. And the people standing around said, Who does He think He is? You know, what's He saying that He can forgive? Only God can forgive sins. And so, verse 9 here, Jesus responds to that, Matthew 9 here in your notes. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then He said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus demonstrates that He is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate, and He has authority to forgive sin. And He said salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus today with great authority. He could do that. Alright, next up. We're going to see Him... He's going to give a parable here. He's going to talk about the authority over his servants. It's a little more complex than that, and I'll get into it as we go. So verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. So Jesus sets up a story here, a parable. And he tells us why. Because there were people there who thought that the kingdom was going to come immediately. And we already know this. Over and over, the people who believed on Jesus to be the Messiah seemed to think that he was going to restore the kingdom right then to its glory. That's certainly what all the disciples seemed to think. And so Jesus corrects this. And so the main kind of point that Jesus is making with this story that He's telling is that it's not about when the kingdom comes. It's about how we live our lives in the meantime. Because no one knows when the Lord is going to return. And it's not our job to figure that out. We have a responsibility. We have to be faithful in the meantime. We don't want to be shocked. We don't want to be ashamed when He comes. We want to be excited. We want to be ready. And so that's the point that Jesus is making here. So as Lord, as King, He has expectations over His servants while the Master is gone, while the Master is away. And that's, that's kind of the idea here. So He sets up this parable. He said there was a, a nobleman who was going to receive a kingdom. We'll talk about that in a second. So He says He calls ten servants. He gives them all... Uh, so much money apiece, and he says, invest this while I'm gone, and when I return, I'll receive it from you. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him, speaking of the nobleman, but his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Okay, so the master said he was going to go, he was going to receive this kingdom, and then he was going to come back, and he has, and now he's calling those servants to account for how they handled the minas that had been entrusted to them. Now, just a side thing here. I just wanted to speak to this because it's kind of confusing. It seems a little strange. What is this? What's, it, what's the significance of this? He's going to, to receive a kingdom and his citizens hated him and they didn't want him to rule over them. I think there's some historical context going on here. Something that Jesus was alluding to that would have <clears throat> made a lot of sense to the, the people that he was talking to. And so I put it in your notes here. There's a quote. And it says this, the Savior probably derived the details of this parable from an actual uh, history of Archelaus, the son of Herod, who after his father's death went to Rome to receive the sovereignty over part of his father's kingdom in accordance with the intentions of his father's testament. 
Its confirmation by the Roman emperor was necessary because Herod's empire and reality formed part of the Roman empire. A Jewish deputation at that time also went to Rome to dispute Archelaus's claim to the kingship, but the emperor nonetheless appointed him as ruler, though not as a full sovereign king over half of his father's kingdom. So it's kind of fascinating. Jesus seems to be alluding to that in this parable, and he's saying, I have a kingdom that I'm going to receive. His father's going to give it to him. And there are people here who don't want me to rule over them. But it doesn't matter. Try as they may, the kingdom is mine. Okay, that the Lord has authority over the kingdom. And so he he gave them this responsibility. He called them to account. Now he wants them to, to display what did they do with what was entrusted to them while the master was gone. Now, this is where I want to really reel it in. The Lord has authority over his servants, and we are servants here. So this is the question for us. Well, verse 16. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. Have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So the first servant came and he said, I took what you gave me and I doubled it. And the master said, good job. Well done, good and faithful servant. The second servant came. He said, I took what you gave me and I made half of that in addition and I'm giving it back to you. And the master said the same thing. Good job, well done. The third servant came and said, you know what, I was afraid of you. And so I didn't do anything with it. I just hid it. Here it is. It's yours. Take it. I don't want it. He certainly didn't butter the guy up at all. You know, like he didn't make any attempt to soften this at all. He, he kind of said some very offensive things to, to the nobleman. So this is the, the master's response to him. Verse 22. He said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. This is a radical story. And Jesus is saying some things that are really uh, really startling and catch our attention here. The nobleman says here, you know what, you're going to be judged by your own words. This is the standard you set. You said that this is the kind of man that I am. Then you should have been all the more diligent to at the very least... And Matthew, he uses the language, you could have put it in the bank and at least it would have collected interest. But you didn't even do that. And so the, the servant here didn't even do the bare minimum. You had these other two people who had been entrusted with something and they got busy uh, trying to invest it and multiply it and have something to show, something to give to the master upon his return. The third servant didn't even do the bare minimum. He didn't even put it in the bank to to accrue interest, he just hid it away. Now, that is bad, 
But what is scary to me is, is that oftentimes we can do worse than that. Uh, we don't just take what God has given us and hide it away. We spend it on ourselves. Or we, we use the giftings that God has given us, the intellect, the talents, the skills, the gifts. And instead of using those for God's glory and God's kingdom, that we use it for our own security, our own comforts, our own pleasures, and we don't regard God at all with any of it. And then God gives us other resources. He gives us financial resources. And so often, we don't honor God with that. We don't thank God for His provisions in our life. We spend it all on ourselves. And so I, I say this, I'm convicted even as I say this, because you know I think in a lot of ways, most of us as Christians often feel like, man, we wish that we did could do more. Don't we? And, and, and that can be a trap. I want, I want to give encouragement here. If you're the servant that is doing what, what, what you're called to do, Jesus has told you here, I'm going to give you these gifts, I'm going to give you these resources, and you're busy serving the Lord and honoring Him with what you have, praise God for that. The Lord is pleased. And one day the Lord is going to say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Amen? Amen. And that is glorious. We just have to recognize that all that we have is the Lord's. And He has gone away and He's going to come back and He is the Master over all of that. He is the Lord. And we have to think, are we really honoring God with what we have, with what has been given to us? Are we really investing it in the kingdom? And that looks very different for all of us. Some people, God has called to be very quiet, very much behind the scenes. God has called some people to be doing significantly bigger things that, uh, that go seen by all kinds of people. Sometimes it's, it's public ministry. Sometimes it's not at all. Um, but the question is, whatever God has called you to do, whatever kind of giftings or influence or resources God has given you, what are you doing with it? Because the Lord will return and we will have to give an account for our faithfulness towards uh, investing what was given to us. And that's the point that Jesus is making. When the kingdom comes is irrelevant. How you're living in the meantime, what you're doing with what I've entrusted to you is, is severely of much more consequence. Alright, moving on. Now, I want to draw your attention here. This is really cool. Jesus has authority over details. When I say that, the details of history on the grand scale, God is, is so involved with it. And He has declared the things that would happen from the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning, down to the smallest of details, the most intricate of details. And we're going to see both of these come out. God is sovereign over the details. Jesus demonstrates His authority over the small and the large. Verse 28. Now when He had said this, He went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass that when He drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that He sent two of His disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, 
Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. So now they're getting ready to enter into Jerusalem and Jesus is going to make His triumphal entry, which we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And that that kind of lines up with where we're at today. We call this Palm Sunday. We're getting ready to see that take place here in Luke. But they're going to make preparations and Jesus sends them into this little village and tells them where there's going to be this donkey tied and you're going to take Him and people are going to ask you why you're doing this and you'll say this and they'll say that. And so even in these seemingly small, insignificant details, Jesus is displaying that He is the Lord over that, that He has authority over that. What we're getting ready to see happen is actually a fulfillment of Daniel 9 and the, the, following, the verses I'm getting ready to read. This is a major, major prophecy. It's called the, the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. And I'm not. I'm going to just give you the the most cursory explanation I possibly can of of that because it's super complex. But basically, there was a prophecy given in Daniel chapter nine that from the time of Cyrus to the rebuilding of the city or the the temple, um, there would be seventy weeks. And so, what we believe that to mean it's literally seventy sevens. So we believe it to be literally seventy seven year periods. So from the time of that decree to the time that Christ comes into Jerusalem on this donkey is 483 years. And so it's timed perfectly to the day on God's time clock, His end times time clock, if you will. And there's a seven-year, there's one 70-year uh, period left, one week left, and we believe that that is the seven-year tribulation period in Revelation that we talk about so often. And so to see how these things fall into place on such a grand scale over hundreds of years, kings and rulers are involved in all of this, the inner workings of it, to the day, down to the smallest detail of go to that village over there and ask, get this donkey and these people are going to say this and do that. We see how Christ Jesus has total authority over everything, large and small. Isn't that amazing? And so I take great comfort in that. And Jesus says to the disciples, you know, I tell you these things, John 14, before they happen, so that when they happen, you'll remember I told you that. And Jesus does that. We have confidence in God's authority, Christ's authority over the details, because frankly, that has great implications on the details of our lives, right? And so whatever you may be going through, large or small, Jesus is able and Jesus cares. Jesus is able and Jesus cares. Okay, He's involved in the huge things on the macro level. He's involved in the little things on the micro level. And He has total authority and power over all of that. And He absolutely cares. Sometimes people may think, I shouldn't go to the Lord about this. Does He really care about that? such a small thing. Yes, yes He does. And He's able. Oh, I don't know if I can go to the Lord for this. This may be too big. I don't know. No. It's not too big. He's able and He cares. And that is the, the glorious reality of it all. Alright, so now Jesus is going to enter in. They have the donkey. He's going to come into Jerusalem. This is what we refer to as the triumphal entry from where we get the whole idea of Palm Sunday. Verse 35. Then they brought Him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. 
Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the king is entering into Jerusalem and the people are praising, the people are paying homage to Jesus as the king of Israel. So he's coming on this, this donkey and this would be symbolic of peace, the prince of peace, the king of peace is coming in. If he were on a war horse, generally that it represents just that. He's coming as a conquering king, but... Jesus will come back as the conquering king riding on a horse. Revelation talks about that. But this is not that time. He's coming now as one who's ushering in peace. He has come to be the Savior, to save people from their sins and to save people ultimately from the wrath of God. He has come to bring peace. But He will bring a sword. Now, the people are praising Him. We know that they're crying out and singing, Hosanna! which historically was a cry for salvation. Please, God, save us. By this point, it had morphed into salvation is here. Salvation has come. They're singing from Psalm 118. Now, the Pharisees didn't like it. They tried to stop it, but they could not because Jesus would be praised. Period. Jesus will be praised. You understand that? And nobody can stop that. And many people have tried. Many people have tried for centuries to to get rid of the, the Bible, the book, to stamp out God's people. It cannot be done. Jesus will be praised. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11, in your notes there, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus would be praised. It was, it was the right thing. And nothing could stop it. And nothing will stop it. Alright, next. Jesus' authority over Jerusalem. Verse 41. Now as He drew near, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus came to save His own, and He was rejected by the very people that He came to save. And now He, he, he comes to Jerusalem and he, he laments, He weeps over Jerusalem. He says, oh, how I, I long to gather you to, to Myself and you would not have Me. And so now you will be destroyed. Destruction will come on this place. And we know that in 70 A.D. that's exactly what happened. Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome under uh, General Titus. And it's really fascinating. They did. They, they closed in the city so no one could come out. It was a really awful thing. And there was all kinds of starvation and terrible things happening. Finally, everyone barricaded themselves in the temple. A lot of the people did. So they set the place on fire. And all the gold that surrounded the temple or was in the temple actually melted down. So after all this was over, in order for them to get the gold out of that place, the, the Romans, 
they, they actually uh, devised ways to blow the building up to get down to the gold. And so literally not one stone was left upon another in fulfillment of what Christ said would happen here. And so Jesus displays His authority over Jerusalem. He said, I came to you. I came to save you and you would not have me. You've rejected me. Now I'm rejecting you. And you will ultimately be destroyed. And they were. And then lastly here, His authority over the temple. Verse 45. Then He went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy Him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear Him. So now Jesus comes into Jerusalem, goes to the temple, and He displays His authority over the temple. And He comes in and He, he overturns the, the money tables. And, and they, they had something going on in the temple at that time where you had to have a certain kind of currency to, to pay into the, the worship system there. But they only accepted a certain kind. So if you wanted this kind, we'll change it out for you, but it will come at a cost to you. So they had a little bit of a hustle going on there. And then same with the, the, the animals. You had to have a perfect spotless animal. So people would come with their sacrifice and they would say, no, 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 sorry. That has a spot on it. You probably can't see it, but it's right there. So good news, we have something for you here. We come at a cost. And so they totally made God's, the worship of God into uh, a business and they were abusing the people and Jesus was incensed by this and He came in and He turned over the money tables and, and chased all of them out of here. He quotes Isaiah 56.7 and Jeremiah 7.11. He says, you know, this was supposed to be a place of worship and you made it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. Now, the leaders wanted to kill Jesus for this. This is not the first time He did this. He did it in John chapter 2 towards the beginning of His ministry and now He does it here in Luke 19 at the end of His ministry. And again, He's just displaying for everyone to see, I am the Lord. I am the King even over this temple. Now they wanted to kill Him for this, but they couldn't because Jesus had authority over that. He knew and He determined when His time was to go, not them. So there was nothing that they could do about it at that time. So I'll just close on this note as we consider the, the authority, the power, the lordship, the kingship of Jesus. Is, is He that in our lives? We'll have the worship team come on up, if you will. We're going to close with a song. I want us to consider this. And I want to think about this. Close with this note. Jesus was the Lord. Jesus was the King. Jesus had authority over the temple. Well, the temple is gone. The temple has been destroyed. Who's the temple now? Notice I said, who is the temple we are the temple. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit within us. Let me ask you this. Does Jesus have authority over you? Is Jesus the Lord over you? Are you His temple? And is He the Master over you? So let's, let's meditate. Let's pray. Let's praise God. Let's confess our sins before Him. Let's repent. Let's turn to Him afresh today and and. and worship and extol and magnify Him for being the Lord, for having authority over all things, especially authority over our own lives. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand? Let me pray. Father, we love You. We praise You in this place. And we acknowledge here and now, Lord, that You are God. You are a King. 
You are the Creator of all things, heaven and earth. You are eternal. You have always been and always will be. You are good. You are just. You are merciful, but You are a judge. Lord, we love You. And You are the King of our hearts. And You are the Lord of our lives. Lord, You are the Lord of this church. And I pray that You would have all authority over us, God. We praise You and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.